0: We're going to turn together, please, uh, to John's Gospel. We're going to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we're going to read one verse from this passage by way of introduction to the subject I want to draw your attention to. And again, like last Lord's Day, I want to make it as practical as I can because I'm aware of a lot of young people in. I'm aware of young Christians, young converts. So I want to make this as practical as I can that it'll help you uh, on your journey as a Christian because we all need help and encouragement and strength and know what to do on the journey because uh, the journey, I love the story of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan because it tells of the story how he came to the cross and after that there were many battles and many defeats and many victories that ultimately got him to the celestial city and got him to heaven and it's a bit like that for us on the journey so I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to turn to John chapter 15 and verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit so shall ye be my disciples. Amen. And we know God will bless this reading of his word. Now, as Bertie has said, if there's any folk that struggle with a child, and that can happen, we've all been there, those of us who are parents, there is a little creche, and you're able to go in there, and I think you're able to hear what's being preached. I think that's the case. So uh, it just... Sometimes it can be difficult for the parent, but then others find it frustrating. If they've traveled to come and then a child is crying a lot, it can be very frustrating for those that want to hear. So we try to keep everybody happy if we can and not offend anybody. So please uh, remember that if you're struggling with a child, you'll not be annoying me if you slip out, that'll be fine. Let's bow together in prayer and ask the Lord for help. Our heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence this morning through the merit alone of your own dear Son and His work that was accomplished victoriously on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated to the Roman soldiers, you demonstrated to the Pharisees, you demonstrated to the Sanhedrin that despite their judgments that Jesus was guilty, and Jesus was not true, that on the third day you raised him from the dead. And we thank you that your judgment was final, that he was your son in whom you were well pleased. We want to thank you for the resurrected, exalted Lord Jesus. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would grant the help of the Holy Spirit. I give myself completely to you, Lord. I pray that you will cleanse me, sanctify me, and grant me the anointing and help of the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge without you I can do nothing, Lord. So I pray for the edification and help of the people of God. I pray for conversion of sinners. And I ask that this place would be saturated with a real sense of thy presence. We take authority in your name over every power of Satan, every activity, all blinding, and all the things that he does in the minds and bodies of your people. We pray In Jesus' name, Lord, that you will bring that freedom and the Holy Spirit will bring liberty and light. So, Father, put a wall of fire round about us, cover us and put a canopy of your grace above us and grant that this place be filled with the light and love and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen and amen. The verse I want to draw your attention to this morning is in John 15, where Jesus uses the picture or illustration of the vine, which was extremely familiar to the Jewish people. It was common. And he speaks to them regarding that vine, and we're not discussing that this morning, but this simple uh, verse regarding fruitfulness. And he says in verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples." The Lord Jesus was conveying that his father received glory, that his father was pleased whenever the children of God, the disciples, were fruitful. Fruitfulness is very important in the life of the Christian, and it is something which Jesus stated brings glory to God. And so our lives, as we travel this journey, we can bring great glory to God. Now it can get us into trouble on earth, it'll maybe get us into the newspapers on earth, but nevertheless, it will bring glory to God. And that's the thing that's important. Jesus pointed out that fruitfulness is also related to discipleship, they're all interconnected. Glorifying God as a Christian is related to my fruitfulness, and my fruitfulness is related to discipleship. And discipleship simply means to be a learner. I am learning from God. Or to use uh, John's language, I'm walking in the light as God is in the light. Now, as I've stated, I want to make this as simple and practical as I can. So I hope those of you who are more mature in the faith will uh, be with me in the simplicity of the message. But nevertheless, that you will learn and that for the young Christians and young converts that you also will be helped. How do I become fruitful as a Christian? How do I bring glory To God. The first thing that's very practical and is conveyed clearly throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that we have to be cut off or detached from sin. Sin is a problem. I remember after I got converted, uh, I really had such a wonderful conversion that I felt that all sin was dealt with. And I had that initial euphoria of the knowledge of sins forgiven, wanting to tell others about my conversion. But very quickly, I discovered that I still was doing things that I thought were already dealt with. And these things did not go away. And I find myself often kneeling in prayer, sometimes weeping, and saying to God, I'm so sorry for my sin Please forgive me, I will never do it again. Now that was a foolish vow to make because if you make a vow like that, you don't have the power to keep it. And so with this dilemma of failure and yet the awareness of conversion, I found myself in a bit of a conundrum. And the only consolation I found was in 1 John chapter 1 where it says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I often resorted, and indeed still do, to 1 John 1 and 9, to bring the promises of God to God, to say that I have failed the Lord, but that the blood of Jesus does cleanse from all sin. And that when we bring our sin to God, God will forgive our sin and he will make us clean by application of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I hope you will understand that that is very often the experience of most, if not all, Christians. But, of course, it's not satisfactory. When you're in that position, you tend to be under condemnation shame and guilt all the time and so what happens is you know that you're converted and you're able to receive ministry from others and you're glad of that but you yourself have no sense of freedom or liberty to share or be particularly fruitful because you're overwhelmed by your own failure. And therefore, you can't really witness, you haven't got joy, you haven't got a great sense of peace, and so it's unsatisfactory. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It simply means that it's not satisfactory. And so, if we want to be fruitful, we've got to deal with sin in our lives. Now, Timothy said, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ... Depart from iniquity. This means that we have to become ruthless with our own sin, whatever that may be. Now, for some people, it can be a lust issue. For other people, it's worldliness. For other people, it's pride. For other people, it's greed and mammon and the love of money. It can be a multitude of things and very often the saints tend to categorize this a little like the Roman Catholic Church. And so they tend to look at the lust one, well, that's the really bad one. And the pride one, well, it's not too bad. But it wasn't lust that actually threw Satan out of heaven. It was pride. Pride is actually more offensive to God and what the Bible calls the sins of the spirit are more offensive to God than the sins of the flesh. And the sins of the Spirit are concealed. So I can look the part, I can convey a sense or an aura of holiness and righteousness, but all these things can be in my heart. Lust and and, and pride and worldliness and, and materialism and 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 so many other things. They can all be there, and, and they are garrisoning and holding my heart. They have a large part of my heart. And so the Holy Spirit, when he enters us at conversion, I want to speak reverently of him, but he begins a squat. You know what a squatter is? A squatter is somebody that gets in, and then they're there to stay, and they change things. And so when the Holy Spirit comes in, he begins this work of speaking to us and pointing out things in us that he doesn't like. Now, it's very important that we begin to work with him and recognize that because that's what Jesus taught the disciples. He said, pray, thy kingdom come. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy kingdom come. So it's praying for the will of God. God, you bring your kingdom into my life. So there must be a departing from sin. You remember the woman that was taken in adultery? I find it so annoying at times whenever the issue comes up in the church or the secular world regarding the issue of homosexuality as an example. And the secular world says, oh, the church is so cruel. They judge people and there's no love with them. And sometimes there's an element of truth in that, where people just completely throw out the the, the, the baby with the bathwater and they're really horrendous and mean to the individual who is trapped in a life of homosexuality. It is a trap. Now, some people want to be in it and that's their choice, but other people are trapped in it. They are caught and inside they would love to be free, but they have just gone with it for a variety of reasons. You see, dear friends, the Lord Jesus laid a perfect example. What he said was, to the woman taken in adultery, I do not condemn thee. When the man came to come, he says, neither do I condemn thee for been taken in adultery. In other words, he didn't condemn. When you find a person where they are, don't condemn them you could be in the very same place but for the grace of God you could be that person you don't know what abuse happened in their lives you don't know the sexual abuse that took place when there were we children in their bed and when their father came in and abused them sexually over and over again and an evil spirit of sodomy, sodomy entered them. See, you don't know about that because your mom and dad didn't do that to you. Don't condemn. But then Jesus said, go and sin no more. Not only do we not condemn We also do not condone. In other words, we don't say to them, you're useless and whatever, but we also say to them, listen, this is sin. And that's how Jesus dealt with it. And we need to be the same in how Jesus dealt with sinners. The Bible says he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. Concealing sin never works. We may get away with it for a long time, but it will catch up. And the Bible is full of illustrations. There was a wonderful servant of God called Samson. And Samson had an eye for the ladies. And Samson was anointed of God. He was chosen of God. He was empowered by God, and he saw great victories. And undoubtedly, on many occasions, God spoke to him through his own father. He spoke to him through his conscience. But he took for granted the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And God's anointing rested on him. And the anointing of God can be on a life even when that life is in sin. And you need to realize that. Because a preacher is anointed does not mean that everything is right in their lives. Many things may not be right. But what happened was God gave him opportunity after opportunity and he didn't deal with it. And then what happened was he lost his eyes. The issue that had led him into so much bother, God dealt surgically with it so that at the end he would become a deliverer in his death and be assured of heaven. If you don't deal with sin, sin will deal with you. So there must be a detaching from all sin. But you say, well, Alan, with the grace of God, I'm doing that. I am trying my best and I'm doing what Jesus said When he said, if your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now that doesn't mean literally to pull your eyes out or cut your hands off. What Jesus meant was, you've got to be very, very radical in dealing with sin in your life. I'm always reminded of the story of the Romans. That when the Romans were advancing in their empire... When they took a new piece of territory, they maybe built a bridge to get over into a new bit of territory. The first thing they did when they got into the new territory was they burned the bridge. No way back. That's what Jesus meant when he said, pluck your eye out or cut your hand off. You've got to be radical. You've got to deal with the issue that you know is feeding the sin. You've got to cut that off. I don't know what that may mean, but you have to find that out with God, what that means. And when you do, God will see that you are earnest and serious about dealing with sin. And it will bring you into a greater place of peace and joy in your heart, which the Holy Spirit wants you to have. So there's a dealing or a a detaching from sin. But then there's also, uh, Jesus talks about a detaching from that which is doubtful. That which is doubtful. So we have all areas where we're not sure about. We have all situations in our lives, and if we were to be quizzed, we would say, well, do you know, I'm not too sure about that, whether it's right or wrong. Many years ago, when I was in Bible college, I remember the principal telling us a story. And I tell it to many people who come to my home because they ask about things that are doubtful. And I said, well, there was a lady on one occasion and she was downstairs walking about and her husband was upstairs getting ready to go to work. He had a shirt in his hand and he shouted down to his wife. He said, is this shirt clean? She retorted... If it's doubtful, it's dirty. And I have tried to keep that as a principle in my life. If it's doubtful, it's dirty. That will keep you safe. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, it says we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. You see, Paul points out that not only is there sin to beset us, but there's weights, things that drag us. It's a bit like driving a car with the handbrake on. I remember my nephew come over from America and the car, he had a little accident. And then I went down and got the car sorted. And I said, you follow me up. And he started her and he raved and she punked out and he kept doing this and nothing was happening. And he said, it won't drive. I must have wrecked something. It won't drive. I says, Have you let the handbrake off? So he let the handbrake off, and then she went to this. There's an American that done that, by the way. From all that's doubtful, laying aside every weight. So you could be dealing with the sin in your life, and let me tell you something very practical. The Holy Spirit is a person, and whenever you begin to deal with sin in your life, and you in your own heart get earnest with God. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. He will use means to communicate because he loves you. He wants you to experience the fullness of his spirit. He wants you to receive everything that God is for you. This is the longing of the Holy Spirit. And so what he will do is he will begin to bring up doubtful things in your life. Not only have I experienced that in my life up to now, but I have talked to multitudes of people over the years and they have all shared the same experience. And the thing that I have found interesting is that the ones who seek God the most are the ones who are spoken to the most, whom God speaks to regarding things. Now, these things that are brought up can be in a multiplicity. There can be organizations that people are in who have felt comfortable for years and then the Holy Spirit begins to speak. And they find themselves having to pull away from some organization that's secretive. Then there are others who uh, use, for example, alternative medicines. And that's a very, very rife thing right across. Uh, basically, Eastern uh, religions have various methods, yoga or a whole raft of them. And uh, just alternative medicines it comes under. Yoga, by the way, means yoke. People say, now I'm not saying that, that uh, the exercises are bad, but, but all the postures that are taken in yoga are all relating to bowing down to a particular deity. And so when a person was in Eastern, in way back in the past, in India and so on, when they were doing yoga, the reason was nothing to do with physical exercise, by the way, it was to prepare you to die. It was entirely spiritual. So that you, all the chakras in the back would be awakened by demons and then the third eye would be opened and you would be re- ready to go into the next world. Entirely demonic. But that's its origin. And so these things, many of these things, whether it be acupuncture, acupressure and many others, these things are taken and they're in the National Health Service. And because a white coat is on, people say, it's okay. Does it work? Yes, in many cases, these things may work. But what you need to find out, and this is up to you to find out, is is this really right? (laughs) Is this really right? Is this actually proven medically or is there something else happening? Let me give you just a little warning. It'll help you on your journey. That is, whenever people talk about energies, trapped energies in the body and meridian lines on the body, when you hear words like that, you know to flow to flee, because those things don't exist. They are just terms that are given. So there can be issues like that. Alternative medicines come up. Music comes up. What kind of music people listen to? Relationships, how we are with other people. Relationships have to be fixed, so on. All these things and a thousand others. The Holy Spirit can come up. So there are areas of doubt that are brought to the Lord. Then, of course, uh, there is the issue of ancestral. Now, I'm just going to mention this in passing. And the reason I mention it in passing is that it's not mentioned very much in church, certainly not a great deal here. But in the work that I'm involved in, I am lost for the numbers of people that I meet on a weekly basis. Fine Christians, people who, who do love the Lord... But these people are a bit like the the break scenario, and that is they are seeking the Lord, and they're wanting to go forward, but really their testimony is, I know I'm saved, I, I, I want to love the Lord, I want to be my best, but there's something dragging me back. And when it comes to praying and reading the word, I'm being dragged back, and I I can't make the progress that I want to make, and I've been held back year in, year out, and I've attempted everything. And my dear friends, very often in those individuals, and again, the Holy Spirit is the one who generally will point this out. It will not be relevant to all Christians. That's why it's misunderstood, because... Christians who have been brought up in a good home and there's been a good ancestry, then generally this isn't a problem. But if you happen to be brought up in a home where there was occultism, where there was witchcraft, where there was involvement in divination, uh, where people were fortune tellers and this type of thing, where someone in the family was a Freemason, well, my dear friends, a different story. One of the most powerful and potent and destructive powers that is present in the church today, in my opinion, the most prevalent one, is where where fathers or grandfathers were Freemasons. Freemasonry is a very bad organization. Now, I don't want to say that Freemasons are bad people because Freemasons go into the organization unaware of the spiritual dynamic unaware that if you travel to the 33rd which is the top degree an honorary degree that is given in Freemasonry that actually you become an open Luciferian the organizers of Freemason, those who created Freemasonry were open Satanists and they worshipped Satan and Freemasonry is a religion and many of us know people who are in it they're not bad people But once they enter into that organization and take the vows that are taken in that, then they bring curses on their children. They bring curses on their families. And believe me, I have seen it for years, the impact of it on lives. Now people say, and I hear constantly good evangelical ministers and pastors, they say, that's ridiculous, Alan, that a curse could rest on a Christian. I've heard that over and over again. I hear people sometimes preach against me, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. But what they fail to understand is, and I illustrate it this way, I say that whenever you become a Christian, if you happen to have a bad temper, that bad temper does not go away when you become a Christian. What you have to do is you have to bring that temper to God. You've got to bring that flesh to God and you've got to bring it to the cross. Now the cross has already dealt with it. Jesus has dealt with everything on the cross. The Bible says he hath broken the curse in Galatians 3 and 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse. He's broken the curse. He's broken the flesh. He's broken sin. He's broken the devil. It's all done. But you and I know from practical experience that you couldn't be saved without coming to the cross. And you can't have the sin nature broken without coming to the cross and saying God I'm giving up now. I repent for all my sin. Lord please deal with this. Please break this over my life. Well it's just the same principle. A curse may be operative but when you bring it to God what God reveals and you repent of it then God breaks it. But it's not broken often automatically. There's some people it is, and others there isn't. You see, the Bible says of Daniel, and there are many other scriptures, but I'm not here to preach on that this morning, but Daniel, whenever, or rather Nehemiah, I beg your pardon, whenever he was told that he had the errand or job to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, he knelt down before the Lord and he confessed his sins and the sins of his fathers. You find this a a very, very common thread through scripture. Now, many people have their ideas as to what that means, but it's very clear in my mind that these men comprehended from the first commandment that if you have idolatry in your life, that there is a visitation of iniquity to the third and fourth generation, the Jews understood it perfectly that there was an impact down the generational line, and that impact has to be broken, and it 's very real and there 's many lovely Christians and they are simply bound by this, and they have tried to read their Bible, they have tried to pray. They have tried the meetings and they have tried every conceivable method to move forward and they find themselves still heavily weighed down. Now it's not my business to tell you what's wrong with your life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But one thing I have observed and watched a pattern over many years is that when people begin to seek God, when people begin to get earnest with God, the Holy Spirit in his own unique and inimitable way will reveal what the problem is. And I have to say I'm amazed at times. I'm literally blown away in my study as I watch God at work in people's lives and how he sets them free from addictive behavior, from problems that they have as they pursue. Some people do pursue Some people press through until they're free. And it's a battle for some people. But others don't press through. And they don't go the whole way. And as a result, they fall. And the ground that they may have gained, the ground they lose. I've seen that happening in lives as well. You see, my dear friends, God wants us not only to be detached from sin, but from all that is doubtful. But God also wants us to choose the good... Or rather to choose over the good when there's a best. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha? That Mary sat at the feet, at the feet of the Lord and Martha was serving the Lord. She was involved in activity and that was good. There's, it's good to be involved in helping. It's good to be serving the Lord in helping in children's work and in, in just being there to assist. That's a good thing to do. But the Bible says that Martha then, in her serving the Lord, she started to get a bit annoyed with the others. Don't get annoyed with other people what they're doing. Just you serve the Lord. That was Martha's problem. The Lord never rebuked her for serving him. He rebuked her because she was passing comment on her sister. What's she doing? She's, what she, she, that's no use. You know, we tend to think that whatever we are doing, everybody needs to do what we do. (laughs) We're all guilty of that. If you're not doing what I'm doing, you're doing nothing. But you learn over the years that God has people in unique places doing unique things. And they're serving the Lord. And you leave them alone because they're serving the Lord, whether they're in a different country, whether they're in the church, but just a different capacity. They're serving the Lord. And you just want to encourage them to keep going. You don't have to do what I'm doing because I can't do what you do. And so this woman started to complain. And the Lord said to her about her sister Mary, who was at the Lord's feet. He said, she hath chosen the better part. And he simply pointed out to her, he said that she's at my feet, she's praying. She's in communion with me, which is actually more important than service. Now the Lord was not demeaning service, but he was simply pointing out that the best form of service is the service that flows from prayer. The best type of service to the Lord is what flows out of communion with God. And so the Lord says there's a time when you have to give up the good in order to go for the best. Elisha, when he was called, the Bible tells us that he was a farmer, and the Lord came and called him through the prophet Elijah, and he came and he said, Listen, I have a work for you to do now. And threw the mantle down. He said, You're going to follow me. And Elisha, the Bible says, that he took the yoke, and then he burned it, and then he put the animal on it and he sacrificed it and then he said goodbye you see he didn't leave the yoke and the oxen behind what he did was he got the call of god through the senior prophet and he said this is the best i am a, a servant of god here i'm a believer in jehovah i'm a son of abraham and i'm i'm plowing and i'm working but the Lord came through the senior prophet and said you have to take up the mantle of the prophet what you're doing is good but this is the best and so he didn't merely say okay I'm going with you and kept the the, uh, animal and kept the plow no he burned the plow and he sacrificed the animals there's no way back there's no way back And this is the way you progress in the Christian life. You've got to cut the ties. You've got to make the decision. You've got to be willing to be thorough with God and not hold back. I'm often reminded of Abraham. That Abraham, when he was called by God to go out after God, and God revealed himself to him, and he had encounter with God. And the Bible says that that his father, Terah, went with him. And he went to Haran, and then all goes quiet for a long time. You know why? Because terror is holding him back. There's something holding him back from God's calling on his life. He has some kind of a fear of his father. There's something that he's afraid of, and he won't take the step. And so Terra dies. And then the Lord comes in chapter 12 of Genesis and says to him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. God comes when the father dies and he says, Come on now, I already told you to do this. You can be held back by the love of a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a pastor, a minister, a congregation, a religion, a denomination or abomination, whichever you want to call it. You see, my dear friends, there's a detaching from the good when there's the best. Then very quickly, there's a dethronement. A dethronement means a letting go. You know, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, and I've quoted it many times from this pulpit where but the Apostle Paul said, It is no longer I that liveth, but Christ liveth in me. He said there's been a dethronement. Paul doesn't live anymore. Paul's heart has been yielded completely to the Lord. Dear friends, remember this. Christianity is the religion of the heart. One of the greatest tragedies, it happens in every generation, but one of the great tragedies, and I have been in this and was through it, in my Christian life, and I'm trying desperately to get out of it. That is, when we get converted, instead of Christ being central to our lives because of our immaturity as Christians, doctrines and denominations become central. And very often, instead of denominations centering on Christ and leading the people to Christ, they very often lead them to the love of the denomination and to the love of the service, and the love of the church, and the love of the pastor. These things are all subtle that can happen, but, but I've been greatly taken in reading this week the book, book of Philippians that when the Apostle Paul was writing, especially in the latter part of the book, he said that, that Christ meant everything to him. He said everything that he had did in his life, all the religion, and all the Phariseeism, and and all the diligence and pursuit of the Phariseeism, and he said all the achievements and accolades, everything he said I have done in my life where I was commended, he said I counted all done that I might gain Christ. That proves to me that in the life of Paul the Apostle, he had such encounters with Christ in his life that he came to an internal conclusion that everything this world affords, my culture, my religion, all those things that men will die for, Paul said, my encounters with Jesus Christ causes me to say that they are all dumb. You see, friends, the more encounters we have with Christ, the more Christ-like we become. And the more the things that we hold to, we will let go of because of our encounters with Christ. And the more you encounter Christ, the more you will want to encounter him. And the more you want to encounter him, then the more the Holy Spirit will bring light into your life. And the more he will show you things in your heart that he doesn't like. He will point out things that you need to repent for. This will be in order to help you have further encounters with Christ. That's the purpose. The Holy Spirit is not trying to make your life difficult. He's not trying to come and remove and rob from you everything that's precious. He's attempting to give you life in all its fullness. He's attempting to give you Christ in all his fullness... So that you can enjoy him here on earth before you even get to heaven. That's what he's attempting to do. You see, friends, we have to be willing to let go. And that's a huge thing. And I know people often say to me, you seem to preach a lot on that. And I do. There's hardly a sermon I don't bring this into. Why do you do that? Because it is a vital component key to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Christianity just will not work without this. You cannot bypass complete yieldedness to God. If you do, Christianity won't work. It'll be nothing more than mere religion, evangelical religion, doctrines, theories, opinions, Bible knowledge, heads swelled up with Greek and Hebrew, but you won't be fruitful. Fruitfulness comes from death. You put a little seed into the ground, it dies, and then up comes the life. Jesus said, my father wants you to be fruitful. This will bring glory to his name. It only happens as you're a disciple, a learning one. Jesus had to die. Do you not have to? Jesus had to go to the cross. Will you not have to go to your cross? Well, the Bible is very clear. You will. There is a place of death for all of us if we want to know Christ better if we want his fullness and his healing in our lives. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, the story is given of the servant, the slave, the love slave. And he's been with his master several years. And the word comes, he said, uh, we can now, God says, you have to let him go. The love slave, he has served us seven years, and now he's free to go. And the Lord said, you, you give him his wife, if he is his wife, and let him go. But God says then, but if he says to you, as a slave to his master, if he says, I love my master, and I will not go out free, then he said, you will take him and you will put his ear to a doorpost. And you'll take the lobe, and he says, in front of the judges will come, and he says they will pierce a hole out of your ear. from that day, you will be a marked man. From that day, you are totally under the ownership of your master. From that day, everybody knows and you know that you belong to your master and you will never be free. And that's exactly what we have to do as Christians. When we meet our master, the Lord Jesus, he gives us choices. But if because of your love to him... You say like the servant, I love my master. I will not go out free. I don't want my own way. I don't want to do the things that I want. I love my master. I want to do what my master wants. And so the master will bring the judges and it will be a public thing. My friends, God loves things public. And it will be done publicly, but it will also be very painful. (laughs) There's no anesthetic They're going to gouge a hole in that ear and you're going to grit your teeth until that hole's through and there's a good enough mark that it won't grow over again because everybody's going to see to the day you die that you loved your master and you have gone out free. And you see the master is saying that you must publicly come out for me but he said it will be painful but he said also it will be permanent. Permanently the Lord's. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Help me to yield up my sword, then I shall conqueror be. As we draw to a close, my dear friends, not only is there detronement, but then there's dependence. The Lord Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Many years ago as a Christian, I remember the late Reverend Sam Workman preaching this text. It was the first time I recall such a truth being brought to me. And he talked on the second rest <laughs> in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the rest of salvation. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and ye shall find rest. There's two rests. The rest of salvation and the rest of sanctification, or the rest of a yielded life to the Lord. And this rest is given. And you see, my dear friends, Jesus said when you take the yoke on. You see, a young a young oxen has to go in alongside the, the old experienced oxton. A picture of the Lord himself. The yoke is then taken and attached to the young oxen. The young oxen pulls this way and that way. But the old oxen keeps it walking in line. And eventually the young oxen falls into line. And it learns to let the oxen that's carrying the weight to bear the weight. And the young oxen, all it has to do is just walk alongside. And there's no strain. And the work's being done. And a field is going to be produced that's fruitful. And Jesus said, you must get in alongside me permanently. You must let me put the yoke on you, and then you must walk with me. And he said, remember, my yoke is easy. It's not painful for to follow me. It's not hard. He said, if you learn to walk and depend on me, he said, I will do everything for you. And my friend, as we depend on him, he supernaturally imparts his purity. He, he supernaturally imparts the ability to pray. He supernaturally gives us power and enabling to live the Christian life. He supernaturally provides the path for us and guides us and helps us on that path. He supernaturally gives us strength so that we progress through all the trials, difficulties, and joys that come. He, my dear friends, will then give provision, supernaturally meeting all our needs, looking after us because he said, I know all your needs. He said, there's not a hair in your head that I haven't counted. He said, there's not a bird drops to the ground that I don't know about it. Oh, if only we could believe, if only we could rest in the fact that we have a loving heavenly father who cares for every detail of our lives, who knows everything about us and the worst about us, and yet there's not a mother could love her child as much as Jesus loves his people. Oh, my dear friend, I am here to encourage you to yield yourself to God. I am here to encourage you to throw yourself into the arms of Jesus, to throw yourself into the love of God, And let God's ocean of love surround you and fill you and encompass you to experience God in a deeper measure. Don't simply wait in where you are and say, well, I hope to get to heaven and when I get there, I'll get in and say a sigh of of relief. My friend, there's so much more. I think the hymn writer said the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we climb the heavenly hills and walk the golden streets. My friends, on the way to glory, God reveals himself. On the way to heaven, God can show himself. He can answer prayer. He can give you the sense of his presence. He can bring you into the company of other Christians who encourage you. And on the journey, you can look and you can say, I saw God today. I saw God's grace today in my life. I saw his mercy today. And the more we think and meditate on these things, it will fill our hearts with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The Lord wants us to depend on him. I remember the story in closing of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. William Booth told the amazing story to his young corporals as they were sitting in their hundreds before him, As he was preparing young people in their teens and twenties to go out into the wild west, as it were, of London. To go out into areas where prostitution and drug, drug abuse and husbands beating children and children starving and abused and dying prematurely. Into an environment that was literally like hell on earth. William Booth was sending out teenagers to preach the gospel. And he told the story to them. He said, I want to tell you a story about a man who had two large bags of gold. He had worked all his life and he had earned so much money and he got his bags of gold. And he said he was on a ship and the ship was about a mile or less from shore. And he was looking forward to getting docked and taking the gold and what he was going to do and what he was going to build and what he was going to achieve and and how great he was going to be. But the ship struck a rock and she started to go down. A little urchin boy come over beside him and said, Sir, I can't swim. Will you save me? The man looked at the gold and he looked at the boy. He knew he couldn't carry both the gold and the boy. And as the ship was going down and the little boy looked up into his eyes, he kept looking at the little boy, but he kept looking at the gold. And as the ship was nearing, going under the water, eventually, as he wrestled with himself and his conscience and his heart and his future and all those things wrestling inside him, eventually, he threw the gold overboard and he took the little boy on his back and he said, son, don't let go. Don't let go. And he swam and swam and swam until he got to the shore. And when he got to the shore, he was so exhausted he passed out. And after a period of time, he came round. And the little boy was looking into his eyes. And he said, Sir, I'm glad you saved me. William Booth said to those young people, throw your money overboard. Throw your gold overboard. Throw the world overboard. Go for souls. Go for souls. Go for men and women into the kingdom. Go for your family. Go for those that are your neighbors. Go and win them for Christ. And he said, when you reach the heavenly shore and you arrive in the celestial city, They'll come up to you and say, I'm glad you helped save me. Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the help of the holy spirit and loving father i pray that the holy spirit will continue to speak to all our hearts and you will help us lord to be willing to go for the best in jesus name amen